Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel 2. A few years ago, a uh, Christian publishing company called Matthias Media put out a track called Two Ways to Live. And uh, basically, it was two ways. Uh, there were only two ways in this life a person can conduct his life. Uh, as far as uh, the scriptures are concerned, you can either, number one, rebel against the Lord and reject the rule of God in your life, and you can run your own life. You can be your own king. Or number two, you can submit and bow to Christ and acknowledge him as Lord and live under the authority of Christ, and he can be your king. Of course, those two ways have consequences. When you live in rebellion against the Lord and you do what you want, that results in misery in this life, ultimately. And it results in the life to come, eternal torment and hell. And then if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will have a spiritually fruitful life. And in the life to come, you will have eternal bliss. That is, of course, because you have trusted in Christ alone and repented of your sins and trusted in him alone, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, the king of Israel, Saul, is dead. We have tracked this throughout the, the latter stages of 1 Samuel for a good while now. We've saw, we, we have seen Saul going after David, trying to kill David. Again and again, now at last, Saul is dead. And the king, the, the Lord, rather, has promised David to be, that he would be the next king of Israel. No one else has give, been given that promise outside of David. But, of course, things get complicated as we come to chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. In chapter 2, there is not just one kingdom set up. There are two kingdoms set up. Now, one kingdom is established by the will of God. And another kingdom is established by the will of man. One kingdom is legitimate in chapter 2, and the other kingdom is illegitimate. And these two kingdoms will come in conflict with one another. As God's rule always conflicts with the self-rule of man, it always will. First of all, let's look at the kingdom established by God. That's in the first seven verses, 2 Samuel chapter 2. It says there, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said, Hebron, to Hebron. So David went up from there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelites, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Hebron. Then the men of Judah came there and they there anointed David, David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you and I also will show this kindness to you because you have done this thing, this goodness to you rather, because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This is the kingdom established by God. This is the legitimate, God-ordained, God-established kingdom of David. Now, it's helpful as we look at this to see how this kingdom came about. First of all, David sought divine guidance. We'll see that in the first verse. He sought divine guidance. Sometime after the death of Saul, David was again faced with a decision. We saw this at the end of chapter uh, 31. And then in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we saw that Saul died in battle. And David is in Ziklag in Philistine territory. And he has a decision to make. And you remember the last time David made a major decision? It, it was not a very good decision at all. He felt like the only thing he could do was leave the country of Israel and go into Philistine territory. Turn back again to chapter 27, verse 1. I know we've looked at this several times. But in that chapter, he made a big mistake. I feel like chapter 27, verse 1, 
David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me to do than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul will then despair of searching for me anymore. And so David inquires of himself in chapter 27, verse 1, as to what to do with his, his next move to make because Saul is hounding him in the land of Judah. And he makes this decision to go to the land of the Philistines. He counseled himself, he inquired of himself, and his answer that he gave to himself was, I think I better get out of the country of Judah and get to the land of the Philistines. Now, I don't think that was typically how David behaved. I think he was discouraged. I think he was under pressure. I think he made a bad decision. As a result, he got himself into some hot water, as we've we've seen in in recent uh, weeks. Now, there's other times recorded where David uh, inquired of the Lord, but not in chapter 27. You know, oftentimes we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place in life, don't we? We're in a difficult situation. We're stressed out. We don't know what to do. Our world's coming to an end. Things are coming unraveled. And the temptation for us is to cut and run. Run from our problems and find refuge wherever we can find it, wherever we can escape to. Only that's not how the Lord wants us to to respond to difficulties. Now, it's easy for me to say that right now. I don't feel like I'm in a difficult situation right now. But, however... Those of you who have gone through great trials, and I see some in here tonight who have, uh, it's very difficult when you're in a situation. The temptation might be to go your own way. But, and David said, I, I don't know what else to do. I'm, I think I'll just, and he counseled with himself. He said in his heart is what the text says. He said in his heart, I think I'll do this. I'll make this decision. And he goes to the land of the Philistines. So David does not inquire of the Lord in that, in that situation. So you may be in a tough spot tonight wondering about what to do next in your life. Maybe you have a decision to fa- that you're faced with. What do I do? Uh, what's the answer? And the answer is always to inquire the Lord. Now, in chapter three, 23, David had inquired of the Lord. But in chapter 27, David does not inquire of the Lord. He talks to himself instead. And we talked about that we should give ourselves counsel from the Scriptures if we're going to talk to ourselves. And we should preach to ourselves from the Scriptures. But it's so easy to be inconsistent when it comes to this business of inquiring of God, of seeking God. But I think David learned from his experience in the land of the Philistines that you cannot take any decision in life for granted at all. doesn't matter what it is, large or small, don't take it for granted. John Calvin said, let us not be so self-assured that we fail to pray. It's easy to get that way, isn't it? We're self-assured and we think, well, we got it under control. We know what our plan is tomorrow. Let's do it. Let's enact our plan. We've got it together. And then things come up that you didn't plan on and things don't work out the way you planned on. And, and, you know, we've got to learn consistently to go to the Lord with our decision-making. You've got to do that. Don't plan your day without the Lord. Don't plan your life without the Lord, no matter how small or great what, that you're, whatever you're facing is, because you will be making a huge mistake without a doubt. So anyway, in chapter uh, 2 of 2 Samuel, David, this time, who's, in, he's still in the land of the Philistines in Ziklag, and we know what took place there. David inquires of the Lord, again, probably through the priest. We're not told that, but in other passages similar to this he had. And he says in verse 1, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. Now Hebron is in Judah, the southern portion of Israel where David had had been and where he had gone through areas where he had hidden from Saul and so on, and they knew who he was there, and he was from Judah. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's a strategic place to go. His two wives had come from that general area around Hebron. So it's strategic. And he says, shall I go? Where shall I go? And the Lord says, go to Judah. He says, go up there. Now, that's the second time, the second time the Lord had directed David to go back to Judah. Now, we've talked about this before, but turn back to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. 1 
verse 3. David is out of the country in chapter 22. And in verse 3, this is after he had feigned madness in uh, Gath and had basically made a fool out of himself there. And then he comes and runs. He's still on the run. In chapter chapter 22, verse 3, he says, um, he tells the king of Moab, I'm here until I know what God will do for me. I'm I'm waiting on the Lord. I want to know what God's going to do for me. And in verse 5, the prophet Gab comes to him and he says, uh, do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. Very plainly, the Lord told him back in 22, look, you're in the wrong place. Get out of here and go back, go back home to David. Go back to Judah where you're from. That's where the Lord wants you at. And, and, and now again, he's seeking the Lord's guidance. And again, the Lord says, go back to Judah. And Judah is where the Lord wants David at this time in his life. And if the Lord wants you in Judah, then, in, then that's where you should be in Judah. And if he wants you somewhere else, then you should go there. But we not, must seek the direction of God in our lives for many reasons, for many things, uh, for his will in many matters. And, of course, we seek it in connection with the word of God. And notice that the Lord led him very specifically, very specifically. Where do I go? I go you go to Hebron. Now, if you study the <coughs> prayer, uh, prayers of the Bible, it's not a general, you know, you don't, you don't find guys general prayer, God bless everybody and bless me and that's it. You've got to go now. Amen. It, there, there's very specific requests given in the scriptures. How about give us this day our daily bread? Every day you pray, give us this day our daily bread. How about Paul in Ephesians 6? Paul said, pray on my, my behalf that utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness, uh, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Not specific. And there's many specific requests that are made in the scriptures. We pray in a specific manner. And the Lord answered David, David specifically. And I think if... If we pray, specifically, the Lord will direct our path. And as we inquire of him, if we're asking according to his will and we're submitted to his will and we want to do what he wants us to do, the Lord will direct us. And so David did this. And so he takes his wives and his, his men and their families and they, they leave Ziklag and they all go up to, uh, they, they go to Hebron. And so, and then he live in the areas around Hebron there, it's in the cities around Hebron. So they're back in Judah. They're back in Judah. Saul is dead. Israel is without a king. They're back in their home territory. So now what happens? What does David do at this point? Should he go back to Gibeah, just north of there, to where Saul lived and declare himself the new king of Israel? Is that what he should do? Hey, I'm back. (laughs) I'm back in Israel. And now the Lord said I'm going to be the next king, so here I am, the king of Israel. Is that how it works? Well, that's not what happened here. By the way, uh, I had a friend who was a missionary in Liberia, West Africa, for years, and he had to leave the country because they had a civil war there, which was kind of an ongoing thing. And he said, you know what it's like over here, Mark? I said, what? He said, it's like that game, King of the Hill. You know, there's a guy in power, and then another guy comes along and tries to knock that guy out of power, and then another guy comes along and knocks him out of power, and it's just like that. And so political, uh, and that's how it, how it happens oftentimes in, in politics. So should David make a power grab here? Should he sees the kingdom now, it's his time, God has told him, you know, Samuel's anointed him to be the king of Israel, Jonathan has told him, you know, you're going to be the king one day, Abigail said, you're going to be the king one day, even Saul said, you're going to be, I know you're going to be the king one day, and they all told him that, although Saul didn't want that to happen, but who makes the next move at this point? You know, the thing to do at this point is to let the Lord work this out, in his time and in his way, and that's where we fail oftentimes, but the Lord is sought by David here, starts off right. And then secondly, David was, confer- was confirmed by God's people. He was confirmed by God's people. Look at verse 4. 
Then the men of Judah came, and they there anointed David king over the house of Judah. Well, they settled down. His men and his, his families and the wives, they all come to Judah, and they settle down. And after he settles down, the, the men of Judah voluntarily come. Nobody's forcing them. They voluntarily come, and they anoint David to be the king of Judah. Now, this is not the first time he was anointed. Back in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anointed him. Remember, he was just a young guy, and he anointed him to be, to be the king. And that was a long time ago. But now, at last, he is the king, at least of Judah. Judah, the guys in Judah come, and they, and, and they anoint him to be the king. Now, this is not like 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the, the, the men said, look, to the Lord, we want a king like the other nations have. We want, to, we want to be like those guys, and we insist that you do this. This is not like that. This moment here in 2 Samuel 2 is of the Lord. This is something that God wants. He had prophesied of this. The Lord had planned for this to happen. Samuel had anointed David to be the future king, and now it's coming to pass. Uh, and, and by the way, it's never easy for David. It comes to pass one stage at a time, right? After much trials and tribulation, being on the run from Saul constantly. But now... Uh, and by the way, they anoint him to be the king of Judah. Samuel had already done that. That did not invalidate Samuel's anointing. It just merely confirms it. It's confirmation that now that, that David is going to be the king. The moment has finally come for David to be crowned king, at least of Judah. This kingdom is established by the Lord. This kingdom, this kingdom is. But the Lord has not yet given David the entire nation to rule, the entire nation of Israel, only Judah. But I want to make a point here. David did not push himself into this. He didn't promote himself. It never even occurred to David to become the king of Israel until Samuel said, look, I'm going to anoint you. And I'm not sure David even understood then what was going on. He never tried to eliminate Saul as the king. He never tried to make the power grab, never tried to overthrow the kingdom. He could have. Remember those two times he had the opportunity? He could have just said to himself, why not just kill Saul now and in this madness? You know, even when he's deliberating in chapter 27-1, he doesn't say, I think I'll, I could kill Saul and get him out of the picture here become the king myself. He never says that. He says, I just think I need to get out of the country. He could have said that, though, but he has two opportunities to kill Saul. Back in chapter 24, he's in the cave. Saul walks into the cave of Adullam with the, David and his men there, uh, hidden in the recesses of the cave, and he has this opportunity to take him out, and his men say, take him out now. You have your opportunity. And David says, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I mean, he's still, still in the fear of God in this cave here. He won't do it. Then in chapter 26, David and, and uh, Abishai walk into the camp of Saul and his men, and they're uh, under a deep sleep from the Lord, it says, and, and David has this opportunity again to kill the sleeping Saul. And Abishai says, now's your time. Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. And David said, I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he keeps saying this again and again. The Lord, David is willing to let the Lord decide who's going to be the king. And furthermore, when he's going to be the king and for how long he's going to be the king. He's not selfishly ambitious. He's not going to try to make the power grab. That's God's business as far as David's concerned. David's willing to wait on the Lord. It says in Psalm 75, verse 6, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one. He exalts another. And so David is not about self-promotion. He knows the Lord will do what he's going to do in his time. Now, we may think that self-promotion is something that happens only in the secular world. People are maybe in a job or vying for a position of management. The position opens, and they're vying for that position and promoting themselves and pushing themselves forward. But it happens in the church as well, sad to say. And I've seen men in churches who are vying 
I've been in congregationally ruled churches. I'm not now putting down congregationally ruled churches here, but I've been in churches like that where I've seen men vying for a position of a deacon. And, and they get this position, and all of a sudden, they are transformed into this dictator of sorts. They think they have some kind of power. Even in a small church, you could have 50 people, 100 people. <laughs> Nevertheless, they have something to rule at this point. And so they promoted themselves, and they're now in charge, they feel like. And they now have something to rule over. And that's not how we rule the church. Uh, that's not how we do in the Church of Christ. The Christ is the head of the church. We're, we're, we serve under him for his glory. Some people desire the office of elder or overseer for reasons other than to glorify God. They want it so they can, they can get their own, push their own agenda through and push their own way through. You know, and if you, if you have this desire to be an elder or an overseer or some leader in the church, you better have the right motives for it. This is not something to play with. You should, your, your goal should be directed to the good of the body of Christ and the glory of God only and nothing else. It's not about you at all. And if, if someone has this ambition to be uh, uh, an elder or an overseer, an, un, an unholy ambition, you better check that and not even think about going into ministry. Uh, ministry is no place for selfish plans and promotions and all that. That doesn't happen. Now let me give you a sobering verse, James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That verse has made me want to leave the ministry and not even get into it at all. Many times. I mean, it's not something to play with at all. Spurgeon said, uh, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. If you can help it. So if you're vying for, if you want a position of leadership or you want to be something in the church, maybe not a pastor or something else, you want to be something, uh, that is a wrong ambition. If you want to do it just out of your own uh, vainglory or pride, we don't want to be like Diotrephes and Third John, uh, who was a man uh, guided by his selfish ambitions. He just wanted to tell people what to do. He wanted to be the boss. Like some of these people I've seen in churches, he wanted to, to rule, you know, and, and control people and, and be the man, right? Even Diotrephes even had the, the gall to stand in opposition of all people to the Apostle John. Can you imagine standing in opposition to an apostle, a real live apostle? In the first century I'm talking about, I don't mean there's apostles now. There's not. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing in an opposition to the apostle that, of whom it is said Jesus loved? This man that wrote about love so often, you stand in opposition. That's what Diotrephes did. He wanted to be the boss. No one was going to tell Diotrephes what to do, not even the apostle John. And so, he, you know, not even the John who wrote the five books of the New Testament. You're not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> Amazing, the selfish ambition of people in the church. The church is not immune to selfish ambition. David is confirmed by God's people. He waits for that, and it happens. And then thirdly, David rewarded kindness. You're going to see the kind of rule David has as, as God's king, as God's established. Is David perfect? No. He's, we know what David did, and, we, and we'll see that in time to come. But David rewarded kindness. He rewarded faithfulness. Not, he's not king very long before his first act of business as the king takes place. Uh, he's, he, he is told by someone that the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who uh, rescued Saul. You remember uh, back in, uh, I think it was 1 Samuel chapter 11, the men of Jabesh Gilead were under uh, siege by the people of Am the city of, uh, was it the Ammonites, I believe, Nahash and the Ammonites. They were on the attack against Jabesh Gilead, and, and Saul came basically and delivered them from the Ammonites, and they wanted to repay, never forgot that, they wanted to repay Saul for what he did. And so Saul, as we saw in 1 Samuel 31, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, is killed. His three sons are killed in battle. 
and their bodies are slain and, and decapitated and they're taken off to another place. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead travel approximately 20 miles at night to get these bodies at the risk of their own lives to get these bodies of Saul and his sons to bring them back to give them as proper a burial as they can because they are loyal to Saul. They're loyal to him, and they were followers of Saul, and they appreciated what Saul had done for them, and they never forgot it, and so they're paying him back for his kindness to them. And so David hears about this, and he wants to reward the men of Jabesh Gilead for their kindness to that they showed to Saul. Now this word kindness here, mentioned in verse 5 and 6, is the kindness that, is the kind of kind, the loyal love that the Lord shows for his people. It's that, it's that kind of, it's a, a special a love that the Lord has for his people. The men of Jabesh Gilead show that kind of devotion to Saul, their leader. David says in verse 6, may the Lord show you the same kindness. By the way, the word kindness in verse 5 and uh, the word loving kindness in verse 6 is the same it's translated from the same exact word. It's the same word, really. And so, so David wishes that the Lord will extend his kindness to the men of Jabesh Gilead just as they have extended their kindness to Saul. And he wants to show them his goodness as well. David wants to reward them for what they've done. He wants to reward their kindness. He, he wants nothing more than the Lord show his kindness to these men who have done good to Saul. Now, David is a just and fair king. And that's how uh, kings ruled who were godly kings back in the day, which, of which there were few. That's how kings should have ruled, with this kind of justice and fairness. And they wanted to honor those whom honored the Lord, right? And whom honored, uh, honored people and whom treated people right. It says, they take the view of Hebrews 6.10. It says in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and, your, and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. The Lord is not unjust to forget what you've done for him. And David was not unjust to forget what these men had done to Saul. He's not unjust to forget that. The Lord takes notice of his deeds, of deeds done for his people. He sees what you're doing. He will not forget your service to him, done in the right spirit, done for his glory. God will reward you for these things. And those who, who, are, who are like this in the church, those who we see who are encouraging others and serving the body of Christ, we should be quick to recognize that. And we should be thankful and encourage you to continue in this kind of service. You know, if you see people who are serving the Lord and they're faithful and, you know, they don't get any recognition, and by the way, they're not doing it for recognition anyway, but encourage those people to continue serving the Lord. We should do that. David did that. David already is showing right off the bat what kind of a king he's going to be, the kind of king that God has established, the fair king. He's going to be a king who rewards those who do what, what is right. He's going to rule in the fear of God. He's going to rule in righteousness. He's a godly king, something Saul never was. This is a different kingdom here. This is the one that God has established. And then fourthly, David appealed for loyalty. Look at verse 7. Now therefore he says to Jabesh Gilead, Let your hands be strong, be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, he's not only trying to reward these men of Jabesh Gilead, he's trying to get their loyalty. He wants their loyalty. Now he's not trying to buy their loyalty by rewarding their faithfulness. He's not saying, look, I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness to Saul. And, uh, by the way, in exchange for that, I want your loyalty. That's not what he's doing here. He wants their loyalty for the right reasons. By the way, he has a right to the loyalty of the people. He's God's established king. He has that right. Now, who has more of a right to ask for loyalty uh, to Saul than the man who's been most loyal to Saul of all, and that's David? Who's got the right to ask for loyalty more than he does? He's got that right. Now, why is it so important 
for David to make this appeal for their loyalty. Well, Jabesh Gilead is, is up north a little bit from uh, Judah, and it's over on the other side of the Jordan River, and they, they're going to be, there's another kingdom that's going to be established. We're going to see this in a minute. Another kingdom established, and, and most of that kingdom, most of the people in that kingdom are going li- to follow the wrong kingdom. They're going to live up there where Jabesh Gilead does and, and other areas up north. And he's trying to get their loyalty, and he's got that right to do that. Um, there's going to be divided loyalties in the nation. This is before the divided kingdom, even. We haven't even got there yet, and we've already got a divided kingdom on our hands. About ready to start. And so, Jabesh Gilead is situated in an area where there's going to be an illegitimate kingdom ruling, and David is seeking their loyalty. And that's not selfish on David's part. It's not selfish. He, that is a good and right thing. He's pointing them to the right kingdom, the one has, that the Lord has established, and he's got every right to do so. And it's a good thing he's doing. Isn't it good that David is trying to get these people to follow the kingdom established by God? What's wrong with that? And isn't that what we're doing? Aren't we doing this same thing? We're making an appeal to people to follow Christ, to be loyal to him? Isn't that what we're doing now? We're trying to dissuade people away from the kingdom of Satan and turn them to the kingdom of the Lord? We're trying to do the same thing, trying to get their loyalty. And that's exactly what Paul said in Acts 26. Paul was said, I've been appointed as a minister and a witness of the gospel of Christ. And he says in there, and, and I've been sent to the Gentiles. Why? It says this, to open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to light from dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul said, I'm going after their loyalty. They're loyal to Satan right now. They're loyal to his kingdom. They're loyal to men and traditions, religious traditions of men. I'm going after the private state. Brad the other day told us about going into the uh, uh, Islamic, not Islamic nation, the place down there where the Muslims are, and he talked about witnessing those guys over there. He's going, trying to get their loyalty to change from that to the kingdom of Christ. Isn't that what that is? So he's, David is doing the same thing. So we go after people's loyalties. That's what it's, it's always about loyalty to one kingdom or another. It's either about loyalty to the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light, one of the two. And so when people have their li- eyes open to the truth, they're exchanging loyalties from one kingdom to the next. We have the right to ask for loyalty to Christ. We have a command to do so, don't we? Go into all the world and and preach the gospel, go in and make disciples of all nations, that is a command we have. So David made the appeal for loyalty to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and if they accept that command, if they accept that, that, that not command, but they accept that encouragement to be loyal, it's a good thing for them. It's a blessing to them. So we're only, we're only, what we're doing here with the gospel ministry, we're trying to help people and bless them by letting them come into the kingdom of God. If God will take them in, if they'll repent of their sins and turn to Christ, it's a, it's a blessing to them. And so this is the kingdom established by God, this one that David is going to rule. It's in, it, it involved the guidance of God. It involved the confirmation of Judah. It involved uh, the reward of the king. And it, and it made an appeal to their loyalty. That is the one established by God. Now, if that was the only kingdom in this chapter, that would be a great thing. But, of course, it's not. There is next the kingdom established by man. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says there, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and had brought him over to Maenaim. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the kingdom established by man. 
By the way, people are never happy with anything that, that God establishes, as long as they're in their sins. They're never happy with that. They're never happy until they've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Never happy with anything God does. They don't want marriage, the institution established by God. They don't like that. They, they hate the church, an institution established by God. They don't like that. They're forever substituting their own illegitimate plans and, and ideas in place of what God wants. And in 2 Samuel 2, there, there's no exception there either. Now, this kingdom established by man, notice, notice what it is made of. First of all, it was initiated by man's will in verses 8 and 9. It's initiated by man's will. Abner comes along and decides that he's going to make Ishbosheth king. Now, <clears throat> the Lord had made plain his word to Saul already. We've seen this many times. He had told Saul, you will have no dynasty. I rejected you from being king. You will have, there will be no legitimate king from among your sons who will ascend the royal throne. It's not going to happen. Your kingdom's finished. It's like the kingdom of Daniel, Belshazzar, whose kingdom was, was you know, was found wanting uh, when God wanted to weigh that kingdom. It's the same thing. His kingdom is finished. Is that going to stop somebody from trying, though, to carry on the kingdom of Saul? No, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, decides that he's going to force his way anyway and start his own kingdom. So he takes this guy Ishbosheth, who's the son of Saul, and he brings him over to Maonam, which is located on the other side of the Jordan River, and he sets up his kingdom there. Now, this is not God's kingdom. This is Abner's kingdom, okay? This is Abner's kingdom. Verse 9 talks about the places that Ishbosheth is going to rule over, but the real intention is that he rule over all of Israel, ultimately. That's what he wants. Now, who is Ishbosheth? Who is that guy? Well, he's the only living son of Saul. If you'll, if you'll look at first, later on, look at 1 Chronicles 8.33, it lists four sons of Saul. Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. Eshbaal is the same, as no doubt, as Ishbosheth, by default at least. He's the only son left. Everybody else had died in battle. Now, Saul's intent was for Jonathan to become the king. He really wanted Jonathan to take over as king. But Jonathan died. But the Lord's intent was for none of Saul's sons to be king. It was just an illegitimate rule. And so Ishbosheth takes over. He's 40 years old when he takes over, and he reigns for two years. David's reign, as you can see in verse 11, is from is seven years and six months in Judah. So somewhere during the time that David reigns in Judah, Ishbosheth is reigning for two, two, two years. But what you need to know is the real power here is not Ishbosheth, but it's Abner. He's the one. Ishbosheth is more of a puppet. Abner's more the one in charge right here. He's the one that's the real leader. He's the real power. He's the, look, whoever char is in charge of the military is the real power ultimately. Is what it comes down to in many countries, right? And he's in charge of the military. He's the one who comes up with the idea. He's the one who decides, I'm going to make Ishbosheth king and we're going to get this thing going. And I'm, going to, I'm the real power behind this. And so it wasn't the people of Israel who confirmed this. It certainly wasn't the Lord who confirmed this kingdom. Abner was building on what Saul already had. He was trying to build on that, but, but God said it's all over with. <clears throat> he just needed one, one son of Saul to put up as a puppet king to, to, do, to establish his kingdom. And so he made it happen. It was his will that it happened. This is the will of man. It's initiated by man. And he did not inquire of God, as David had done. It was not confirmed by anybody. anybody. Um, there was no attempt at goodwill, as David had attempted goodwill toward the men of Jabesh Gilead. There's no, uh, there's no appeal to loyalty at all. Abner just is, assumes everybody's going to follow him. Uh, this, is, this is the new kingdom now. 
But none of this is of God at all. It's solely the work of man. As you read this chapter. And Abner is a man who is selfishly ambitious. And then notice that this kingdom of man was, was set up in defiance of God's word. It's set up in defiance of, defiance of God's word. Now, why do I say that? Jump ahead a little bit. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> Jumping ahead in the context. We're not going to go into the entire context. Next time we get together, we'll go over this. But here's Abner who had gotten mad at Ishbosheth over time and decided he was going to support David instead. instead. And look at verse 17. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. That's interesting. Verse 18, Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save people, my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. You see that? This is the, Abner knew it was the will of God for David to be king. He knew it. He knew it wasn't the will of God for Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth to be king. He's well aware of that. And yet he defies God anyway and sets up this kingdom that he decided to establish. It's a clear violation of the will of God. Abner knew it, and yet he did it anyway. And, you know, like I said, he got mad at Ishbosheth, and, and so he jumps on this new opportunity. He's not interested in the kingdom of God. He's an opportunist. He's interested in his own kingdom. And I had Justin read Psalm chapter 2 earlier. It's no different from that. It says in Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the earth <clears throat> take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. And so by setting up his own kingdom, Abner disobeyed the word of God that he knew was in total disobedience to the word of God. He knew that plainly and he rebelled against the authority of the Lord. He rebels against the Lord's chosen king, the Lord's anointed, and he goes about setting up his own earthly king. And that's what he does. David was the anointed of the Lord to be king, not Ishbosheth, not Abner, not anybody else. It was David. He was God's anointed. He was the only one that had legitimate right to rule. Now, the, the Psalm 2 passage, <clears throat> it's quoted over in, in Acts chapter 4 uh, in a prayer to the Lord later on. It's quoted, and then right after the prayer it says this, For truly in this city in Jerusalem... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, whom you, Lord, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, the Lord anointed Jesus to be, to be who he was, to be the, one, the, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. And yet, the rulers of that day and age, they revolted against the Lord. They didn't want that rule. We shall not have this man to be king over, as they said, in effect. And so they, they crucified him. David, the Lord's anointed, is opposed in the Old Testament. And then the one who came through, through him as a descendant, Christ, the Lord's anointed, is opposed in the New Testament. Now, that's what we need to understand about people we come in contact with. We need to understand where they're coming from. They live in rebellion against God. They have their own, they're, they're their own king. They set up their own kingdom for themselves. They rebel against God's kingdom. They don't want his way. They're, they're, they're controlled by themselves. And so that's why it's important. For us to explain carefully to these people the rebellious, sinful nature of man. Because they, otherwise they won't know they need a Savior. They need to know they're in rebellion against God. They're in sin against God. And, and that they need a Savior. And so we're, it's, it's, it's utmost important that we explain that to them. So Abner disobeyed the word of God. And he led every tribe except for one to do the same thing. That was Judah. Do you notice there where it says, uh, it says that Judah was the only tribe 
that follow the Lord, that follow David. They're the only ones right now at this time obeying the word of God and doing the right thing. And then this tribe of man, this tribe of man that was set up by the will of man resulted in civil war. Look at verse 12. It says there, Now Abner the son of Ner went out from Aenam to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. <clears throat> and Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is in Gibeon. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. <clears throat> now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was swift-footed as, as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Azahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. So, a- so Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself. And take for yourself the spoil. But Azahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face up to your brother, Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and then when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which is in front of Gia by the, water, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it would be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. You have civil war as a result of all this. Abner's men marched down to Gibeon, which is, by the way, about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. This is an aggressive move on Abner's part. This is... He's on the attack. He's saying, I'm on the attack, basically. He's going to fight. And Joab, the commander of David's army, makes a defensive move and goes up to Gibeon to meet him. Now, when they went to Gibeon, Gibeon was known for, it talks about the pool there. It was known for an elaborate water system. And a huge, by the way, a huge pool has been found cut into a rock that has been discovered really deep. And many think that it is this same pool. I don't know if it is or not. Nevertheless, these guys weren't there for a day at the pool. They were there to do battle. In verse 14, Abner says, let the, the young man hold a contest. Now, that really amounted to a declaration of war. It was a representative battle they were going to fight in here. Twelve against twelve, twelve men from either side. Let's, let these guys duke it out. And then if they, you know, whatever happens, there may not need to be any further bloodshed. Kind of a representative war like Goliath and David were supposed to fight. The only problem was 24 men ended up dead. They killed each other. So it accomplished nothing at all. And so... Uh, they continue to fight, and Abner ends up, you see this guy Azahel, Joab's brother, Joab's the commander of David's army, he's, he's chasing after Abner, the man of experience and uh, a veteran in war, 
Azahel's not. Azahel's not too bright, it doesn't look like. And uh, Abner ends up killing him, but he doesn't want to, but he kills him anyway. And, and then finally, in verse 26, after all this battle, Abner says, look, brothers <clears throat> should not be fighting against each other. In other words, we're countrymen. Why are we fighting a civil war? Well, you got a lot of nerve, don't you, Abner? You started the war, but now he wants to end the war. So Joab stops the fight, and everybody goes home. The casualties, 19 on David's side, 360 on Abner's side. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Summarizes the whole thing. <clears throat> it says there, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. That's a summary statement right there of this whole section. The house of <coughs> Saul is growing weaker. house of David is growing stronger. Why is this happening? You have two kingdoms here. And it shouldn't be. It should only be one kingdom, the one established by God, David. Not this other illegitimate kingdom. The reason the house of Saul grew weaker was because it was built upon sinking sand. It was not a house that inquired of God. It was, not a, it was not a kingdom that was confirmed by God. They didn't take the word of God seriously. They forced their way into a kingdom that never should have been. They exalted man, their kingdom. It was all ambi selfish ambition of man. And so it got weaker and weaker. God was not on their side. God, God couldn't bless this. And the reason the house of David grew stronger and stronger is because it was built upon the rock of the Lord himself. He ordained his kingdom to take place. He established his kingdom. David is his anointed king. The Lord guides David. David inquires of God. David is confirmed by the people of Judah. You know, David is, is uh, reaching out to people and seeking their loyalty and doing things the right way and being a good and fair king. You know, you can't stamp out, stamp out what the Lord established. If the Lord establishes something, it's going to be there. It's going to stay there. The Lord has in mind that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David, and that's going to happen. You can't overthrow that, because what God establishes will come to pass. And that's the bottom line. The Apostle Paul tried everything within his, in his power to destroy the church. He tried to destroy the church, but he couldn't do it because the very gates of Hades cannot prevail against the church. It can't happen. God has established it. There's a day coming when the Antichrist himself will set up his kingdom. And he's going to rebel against God, the epitome of a, rebel, of a rebel. And he's going to establish himself. But he's going to be defeated by God and cast into the lake of fire. Well, what are we saying in, in all this passage tonight? Here's the bottom line in a nutshell. We're saying this. The kingdom of man will always fail. It will always fail. Anything man sets up apart from the Lord is, going to, is doomed for disaster. It's going nowhere at all. May, it may, he may, you may have your day in the sun for a while, but you're going to go down eventually. There's an end in sight to that kingdom. But as Martin Luther said, of God's kingdom, his kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. So let's be encouraged by that tonight. Let's remember as we close Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. <clears throat> Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight for your word. We just pray that we will be promoting your kingdom, Lord, knowing that it's the right thing today to do, knowing that it's something you've commanded us to do, knowing that people will be blessed by being a part of your kingdom, knowing that only good will result, knowing that God will be glorified uh, through, through this. We just pray tonight we would uh, be those who would be willing to 
go out there and, and talk to people about the gospel and, and try to pluck them as brand from the burning. We pray we do that with the Spirit's help, relying upon the Lord. We pray for our church tonight. We pray that as we go our separate ways that we will uh, be loyal to you in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.